Uh, I want to singularly look at Proverbs 18, verse 10. It's a familiar verse in, in our time this morning. I just want to unpack it. Let me read it for you as we begin. Proverbs 18, 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Uh, the righteous run to it and are safe. Uh, I, I mentioned to you that I've uh, came to Sydney to work on a PhD through the University of Sydney, uh, and I'm still working on it. And that uh, thesis in, in my research is primarily uh, in 1 Samuel. And if you've ever studied 1 Samuel, it is a, it's a great book to study. It's got everything in there. There's drama, there's history, there's suspense, heroism, bravery, tragedy, royalty, nobility, and of course there's theology in there. There's so much packed into 1 Samuel if you've never read the book. But a central and key theme to 1 Samuel is leadership. Leadership. And the way that the writer of 1 Samuel wants to bring out uh, true and godly leadership is through contrast. Uh, in contrast to the various leaders that are there in 1 Samuel. And so these lessons on leadership that are pulled out of 1 Samuel are primarily pulled out, as I said, through contrast. you got the good king and you get the bad king. And so you learn from the good king and you try not to do what the bad king does. Um, in particular, if you know 1 Samuel, the, the, really the bad king and the good king are who? Well, you got Saul and David. Saul being the bad king and David being the good king. And um, as I said, the, the, the writer of 1 Samuel very cleverly and skillfully weaves the narrative, uh, narratives of Saul and David together to, to really highlight the utter difference between them. Uh, he, he does a number of different things in terms of um, showing how different they are, but at the heart of it is the difference in their leadership skills. Tied to that, in terms of their differences and contrasts, uh, the writer of 1 Samuel highlights how they respond to trouble. That, that, that comes out in, in the narrative. Not, not just how they deal politically uh, with the people, but how they deal, uh, you can say, the, the political trouble, the spiritual trouble, just trouble in general. Saul certainly handles it one way, and it is utterly different in contrast to how David handles the trouble. You don't have to turn there. Let me, let me just refresh your memory, if, if, if you do remember this. Uh, this huge contrast primarily comes in 1 Samuel 28. I don't know if you remember, but in 1 Samuel 28, there's uh, trouble in Saul's life. Uh, there's um, a great Philistine army that he's facing, and so he, he naturally becomes afraid, and he's deeply distressed. And we all understand that. You're facing an, uh, an army, uh, such as the Philistine army, you're going to be afraid. So what do you do? What would you do if you were Saul? Well, if you know 1 Samuel 28, he turns not to God, but to who? A witch doctor. Remember that scene? The witch at Endor? He, um, he goes, disguises himself, because uh, <laughs> the law says you can't engage in sorcery, but you know, he, he'll try to get around that by disguising himself. So he disguises himself, goes to this witch, and, and to see, again, not to get a word from the Lord, but to get a word from who? The prophet that just died recently, and that was Samuel, right? He, he believes that this medium can really conjure up the, the spirit of Samuel, as it were. And, and, and I, I do believe that it was Samuel and, and God's design and providence that did send Samuel back. And, and really, he came back to pronounce the end on who? On, on, on Saul. It pronounces the end on Saul. Let me just read you verse 15 of 1 Samuel 28. Saul tells Samuel... 
when Samuel appears, I am deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me. Therefore, listen to this, I have called you and you, or sorry, that you may reveal to me what I should do. Now, you're in trouble. What are, who are you going to turn to? If you're King Saul, um, you go to a witch, you call out a prophet who's already been dead, and he gives you the reason why, because I'm in deep distress and I want you to tell me what I should do. Now, I want you to take that and contrast that with David. Two chapters over in 1 Samuel 30, where a very similar situation. The uh, Amalekite army has attacked Ziklag, which is a city in the south. They, they burned the city down. They kidnapped all the women and the children. Sounds very similar to some things in some parts of the world today. But most notably, they kidnapped David's two wives. And, and you think that would have been trouble enough. Here's King David who hears that his town, Ziklag in the south, has been destroyed, burned down, and all the women and children, including his two wives, have been kidnapped. So well, what are you going to do? How does David respond to trouble? And then, by the way, just on top of that, the, the, the men uh, turn on David in a sense and want to stone him because they, he didn't come in time to protect them. So he's not only facing the Amalekite army, but he's facing his own Israelite men who are starting to rebel against him. So he's in deep, deep trouble. So he says, or the narrator, I should say, in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, and by the way, notice the similar language. Now David was greatly distressed. Same phrase that was used with Saul. He was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters, and then listen to this, but David did what? But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You, you see the contrast? That, that's what the writer of Samuel, first Samuel is trying to get to. Saul turns to a witch. Saul turns to a prophet. David, in his deep distress, turns to God. In fact, it says he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That is to say that in, in, in Hebrew there, in the Old Testament, the idea of being weak is your hand is kind of quivering. And strengthening is strengthening your hand. And the way you strengthen your hand is by putting your hand into whose hand? Into God's hand. And that's, that's what it means by encouraging. So again, what, what did David do in his trouble? He turns to God. What did Saul do in his trouble? He turns to a witch. He turns to a medium, a soothsayer. Or you're probably not going to do that, I hope. So what would be the alternative? You're probably going to turn to carnal human wisdom. Right? So both of, them in, both of them are in their great distress. Again, this is the contrast you need to grasp. One turns to divine wisdom. The other turns to human foolishness. One trusts God. The other trusts himself. And you have, by the, by the way, two different results in the end. One turns to tragedy, horrible devastating tragedy with Saul and the other what? Blessing with David. All back to how do you deal with trouble? Where do you turn to when it comes to trouble? Now I begin with that because to me this is, that story of Saul and David are a great illustration of Proverbs 18.10. If you want a picture of what Proverbs 18.10 looks like, I, I, hopefully I just gave it to you. What do you do when trouble comes. Trouble will come if you haven't had any trouble. Jesus says in this world you'll have what? Tribulation. 
Job says, as the sparks fly upward, man is born for what? Trouble. And trouble is, as a Christian, you're not immune to trouble. All these TV people that says when you come to Christ and he'll promise you this and promise you that and you'll never have any more trouble and you're wealthy and healthy, they're a bunch of liars. Actually, I have more trouble now that I'm a Christian than I was before I wasn't a Christian. Right? So the question here, and this is the issue of the verse, is where do you turn to when the trouble comes? You're going to be like Saul and turn to carnality, to, to human wisdom, or are you going to turn to God? That's the issue that's here before Proverbs 18, verse 10. And by the way, look at the text here again. You've got to include verse 11 because verse 11 actually includes the Saul account. David's in verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. That's, that was what David did. But read verse 11, because this is what Saul did. The rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his own esteem. Now, I'm not sure what translation, that's the New King James, but <clears throat> literally it means like a high wall in his own imaginations. It's not real. It's, it, it's imaginative. And what's that mean? That, that's human wisdom right there. That's human, you could say, depending on, as you can see it there in verse 11, that's man's wealth. That's man's power. Where is he going to turn to? He, he doesn't turn to the Lord. He turns to himself. He turns to his own wit, his own wisdom, his own power. He thinks money can buy him out of his trouble. So again, that's the contrast between verse 10 and 11, and that's the contrast you see between Saul and David. And here... Here's Solomon, who's the son, obviously, of David, who um, wasn't always wise in the sense of his uh, practical application of his theoretical wisdom. But here he, he makes the point, this is the Solomon, the author of the Proverbs, and here of this verse, he's making a fundamental and critical point on how to handle trouble, and you need to get this, because life is going to be full of troubles. And, and he's making this point by a contrast. Contrasts are always helpful in teaching, right? This is what you do, but this is not what you don't do. And this is what he's doing here. This is the difference between a wise person and a foolish person. In fact, that's what most, I mean, all the Proverbs are, really. That's how the Proverbs are, are, are given in terms of, a, of, a, of, a, of teaching and in lessons. It wants you to see the wise way of doing things and the foolish way of doing things. And so verse 10 is the wise way. This is how a wise or righteous person would respond. And verse 11 then is how a foolish or unrighteous person would respond. And you say respond to what? Well, when you respond to trouble. When, when trouble comes, when great distress comes, you can see here between verse 10 and 11 that the wise are unique. The wise are distinct to the foolish. And you say, why? Well, what makes them different? What makes one wise and what makes one foolish? Well, at the end of verse 10, you see that. Or I should say at the beginning of verse 10. The name of the Lord. In other words, you know what the difference between a wise response and a foolish response when trouble comes? Is the object of trust. Did you get that? The object of trust. Because you will turn you will turn to something or someone and when whoever or whatever that object of trust is that you turn will tell me everything about you. It, 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 will, it will tell me in the end whether you're wise or you, whether you're foolish. And I trust we're all here this morning that wants to 
be wise, right? We, we want wisdom. We want God's wisdom. We want to do God's business God's way. And so we, we need to find out, well, what is that? What is that object of trust, and how can we be wise when trouble comes? So the crucial questions, really, in, in this text that <clears throat> Solomon's getting at is, 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 is where, where do you turn? Where is your strength? Where is your security? Where is your safety? What or who are you trusting in? Are, do, when trouble comes, I picked this, I'm not unique uh, in this, but I picked this up along the way. I hope I'll pass it on because I think it's helpful. When trouble comes, do you run to the throne or do you run to the phone? Did you get that? If trouble comes, what's the first thing you do? You call somebody. But what's the first thing you should do? You run to the throne. That's exactly the point that Solomon makes here. Is our confidence, is our faith in the name of the Lord, or is our confidence in our faith in, as verse 11 says, our wealth, our wit, and our human wisdom? And you notice that Solomon here says that only one is factual and real. There's only one place to go because all the others are just imaginative. That's the point at the end of verse 11. One is built on the rock and the other is built on sand. So where are you going to turn when trouble comes? Who are you going to turn to when trouble comes? Well, to really unpack this verse, I want... To, to, but by the end of this morning, to say, I'm going to turn to the Lord when trouble comes. Maybe you're in trouble this morning. Uh, you need to learn to turn to the Lord. So, so let, let me help by unpacking this verse to really bring home that point, okay? And in doing that, I want to give you three benefits. If you're a Christian this morning, here are three privileges or benefits that are yours that should motivate you to run to the Lord, Okay? Let me give you these three, you can call them blessings, but I, or, or even rights for that matter. Uh, these are yours. Uh, if you're a Christian, you, you have privileges. And that's what Solomon is getting at here. And, and, the, and, and the privileges is that you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You are in a covenantal relationship with God. I always tell our folks, you know, the issue isn't do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because everybody has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Even Satan has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not a very good one. The issue is do you have a covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ? Does that make sense? Are you in covenant with him? Is he your Lord and master or are you his slave and servant? Because when you have that covenantal relationship, you have privileges. You have benefits. You have rights. In fact, you notice that uh, Solomon here uses the name of the Lord. You notice that it's in all capitals there? You, you know what that means, right? That's the, the Lord's name, Yahweh. That's his covenantal name. So he's getting right to the heart of his name, which is getting hard, right to the heart of his relationship. This, this is the name of Yahweh. Well, we'll talk more about the name of the Lord in terms of his other names in a moment. But Yahweh is his covenantal nature. And so if you are a Christian, you can call upon that name, the name of Yahweh. And as I said, with that comes three privileges or three rights. So let, me, let me just give those to you now and I want to quickly go through them. Here are, are three wonderful blessings of being in covenant, covenant relationship with Yahweh, with, with the Lord. Especially when you're in trouble, okay? So, 
you, you could basically put it this way. In deep and great distress, we have, number one, an unshakable fortress. Unshakable fortress. And remember the little Lego box there? That's, that's, that's the picture that Daniel was getting at. We have an unshakable fortress. Number two, the Christian also has an intuitive faith. Did you get that? An intuitive faith. We'll talk more about that if you don't understand that at this point. But, and then number three, we have the assurance of faithfulness. An unshakable fortress, an intuitive faith, and the assurance of faithfulness. All three of those come right out of that verse. And as I said, these are three great privileges that are ours if you are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, these aren't yours. And we pray that they will be yours. But this is for the Christian. The three great privileges of being a Christian. That when you find yourself in trouble, and as I said, you will find yourself in trouble. And the question is, what do you do? Knowing these privileges will motivate you to do these three things. It will motivate you to know that you have an unshakable fortress, that you have an intuitive faith, and you have an assurance of faithfulness. So let's look at these real quick, one by one. As I said, the first is an unshakable fortress. In deep distress, just to borrow that language from both Saul and David, in deep distress we have an unshakable fortress. Obviously that's the picture Solomon's painting is painting here for us. He wants to, he wants to show you that you, you do have an unshakable fortress. And he says that in the second line. He says that the, 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 the righteous, what? What does he say? The righteous run to what? It. Oh, what's it? Well, you go back to the first line. That's what? A strong tower. And you say, well, what is the strong tower? Well, we keep reading backwards. And that strong tower is the name of the Lord. In other words, he's saying that the name of the Lord is like a strong tower. It's like a strong tower. As I said, this is the believer's privilege. He has a never-failing refuge. He has a fail-proof shelter, an unshakable fortress. And the question is, well, what is that? That's the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is like a strong tower, a uh, 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 an ending refuge where you can go and hide and be, and I think that came out in the talk, protection. That you can be protected. This is what he's getting at. Our unshakable fortress we run to in times of great trouble is none other than who? Who is like the strong tower? What is the strong tower? It's who? God himself. You got that? That's, that's his point. God himself. In fact, you think about it. As a Christian, what's the first thing you got when you became a Christian? Why did you become a Christian? Now, there's a number of reasons why people become uh, Christians. Maybe it's because you wanted fire insurance. You didn't want to go to hell. Maybe it's because you wanted to be happy and content because you, you just, you, you, oh, life was miserable. Maybe it was because you wanted fulfillment of life. Maybe it was because you were lonely. None of those are wrong answers in itself. But at the top of the list, the reason, if you think about it, the reason why you wanted to be a Christian and bow your knee to Jesus Christ is because you wanted who? Him. You got that? You wanted Him. He was to be the most precious thing that you, as, as the parable said, you, you found um, treasure in the field, you, sold, you bought the field just to buy the what? The treasure. 
He sold everything just to get the treasure. The treasure is who? The treasure is Christ. This is what Solomon's getting at. You, you run to him because he is precious. He is the treasure. You want in Christ. He is the promise, the benefit, the privilege, the reward. Obviously, we have a lot of privileges and rewards and benefits to the Christian life. It is the most blessed life there is with many blessings. But at the top of the list is you get Christ. And that's what Solomon's getting at. You get Christ. You know, I love the Puritans. And Puritans said, one of them said, if I go to heaven and Christ was not there, I would leave. That's what he said. If I got to heaven and Christ wasn't there, I leave. Because that's only what makes heaven heaven is Christ. What makes heaven heaven? Christ. So that's what you get if you're a Christian. That's your privilege. You have an unshakable fortress, and an unshakable fortress is who? It's God Himself. It's Christ Himself. You get God. Now, what does that mean? It means you get peace with God. You get forgiveness of sin. You get eternal life. But not just eternal life, you get a what? An eternal friend. Isn't that what God is? He's a friend? Isn't that what uh, described Abraham and his relationship with God? God said, he's my friend. Moses talked to God as a man talks to his friend. Did we just sing that? Something about Jesus... um, yeah, we just saying, Jesus, what, a friend for sinners or, or something like that? I mean, that's the point. We get God. We get Christ. That's what it means to run to him as an unshakable fortress. I, I don't want you to turn there. Uh, let me just read for you Psalm 20. Because this comes out a, a lot in the Psalms. Uh, especially with David's Psalms. In Psalm 20, verse 1. David says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. David knew all about trouble. By the way, the the, the Hebrew there in terms of trouble is pressed down, squeezed. You can't breathe. You ever been there? You ever been there where the trouble, the burden was so much that you, you were gasping for air? He says, may the Lord answer you in that day when you can't breathe. Verse 5 of Psalm 120, we will rejoice in your salvation. And listen to this. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill your petition. Verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. I mean, this is a parallel passage to Proverbs 18. What he's saying is that when you're deep distressed and you can't breathe, the Lord will answer you. You'll run to the Lord. You'll boast in the name of the Lord. And and all these verses imply that what? He's going to answer you. Well, I should say, it's telling you that he answers you. What he's implying is that you've actually prayed to him. You've prayed to him. The name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. That's his meditation. That's his boast. That's that, that's what he runs to when trouble comes. Again, this is the pattern that you see with all the righteous, all the wise people of the Bible. When trouble comes, where do they turn to? They turn to this unshakable fortress. You know, this, this name of the Lord. It's a defending name, as you see there. The displayed name. The delivering name. Again, I go back to this whole issue of friendship. I, I did a series in our church at the beginning of the year on friendship because I, I just see, I was quite concerned about our, our own folks who um, were just starting to play a little bit with the world and the world's friends. And uh, I, as a pastor, just concerned. So I gave them a, a, a series on friendship. What is true biblical friendship? 
And we talked mostly through the Proverbs, what a friend is. But at the top is, in terms of a model or what a friendship looks like, you can talk about David and Jonathan, but the model at the top is Jesus and his disciples. With Jesus and Christians, that's the model of what true friendship is. And so Jesus is, 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 is the friend that comes in the time of trouble. I mean, Jesus said it himself, no longer do I call you slaves, but I have called you friends. And in other words, the fact that Jesus is our friend and he's our unshakable fortress, that's who we get when we become a Christian means that he's what? That he's trustworthy. That he can be trusted. I mean, that's when you go back to the text here in Proverbs 18, that's what it means by a strong tower. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. I mean, here's two things you need to really understand. One is his name, and, and secondly, the metaphor of a strong tower. But when he says the name of the Lord, what does that mean? I mean, ever you, you, you all have names, right? Do you know what your name means? I mean, my name's Todd. T-O-double-D. And, um, you, know, why, why, you know, you ask my parents, why did you name me Todd? It, it was trendy back then. I mean, all the other Todds I know around my age. It was a trendy thing back then to call your... Your kid Todd. In fact, my first name's Robert. Robert Todd Stanton, but for whatever reason, they just picked on Todd and called me Todd. Um, Middle English, it means fox uh, and, um, or, or clever. Uh, I'll, I'll run with that one instead of the fox. But uh, we all have names. I don't know if you know the, the background to your name. Very important in, in the Bible and biblical times, names had huge importance, huge significance. It spoke quite a bit about your character, about your nature, or your attributes. Um, Isaac, you know what that name means? Laughter. Esau, Harry, Jacob, supplanter, Moses, drawn out, Abel, breath or vapored, Nabal, fool. And, and then you have all these what we call theophoric names where God's name is in the name, such as Elisha means God is salvation. Daniel is God is my judge. Joachim is the Lord has established. Isaiah is the Lord is his salvation. Uh, and then sometimes in the Bible, the names changed to, to, to reflect the change in character attribute. Abram became Abraham, father of many nations. Jacob became Israel, God strives. Saul, um, the one, which means, uh, the, not, not King Saul, but the Apostle Saul, which became Paul. Saul actually means the asked for one, and Paul means humble or small, little one. Simon, as you know, became Peter, which means... Well, you can go on and on. It's a fascinating stuff. You never study the names. So the point here is that when, when we talk about the name of the Lord, we're talking about names as something very important. They stood for the person. Now, I hope I'm clever in terms of my name, but that's not the point. When we talk about the name of the Lord, we're talking about his character. You got that? We're talking about his, his nature, his attributes. So the name of the Lord, you know, the name of Yahweh, what is, what's embedded, as it were, in the name Yahweh? That's what you run to. If you understand Yahweh, His name, then that's why you run to Him. He also has names, by the way. There, there are names of the Lord in the Bible. He's not always called Yahweh. But again, the point is, it, it, it speaks about Him. It speaks about His character. His um, eternality, his immutability, his power, his love, his kindness, his mercy, his grace. I mean, you just walk down through all the attributes. They're all in the name of the Lord. 
The name of the Lord really sums up all that He is. I mean, that's why you have uh, often in, in the Psalms even, not just David, but the other psalmists, they, they, they simply refer to the name of the Lord in their worship. I mean, they could say that we, we worship the faithfulness of, we worship God and we thank Him for His faithfulness and we could pick on this attribute. But when, when you read the name of the Lord, he, they're just, you know what? All the above. That's what they're doing. All the above. Psalm 113.1, praise the name of the Lord. Psalm 122, give thanks to the name of the Lord. Psalm 33, we trust in his holy name. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Psalm 7, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord. I'll stop there. i got a few more, but you get the point. Look it up. The name of the Lord is all that God is. And remember I said, it's not just name, but names. There's a number of names that God has. They're all self-revelatory names. You would never know the name of God unless he told you, unless he permitted you to know it, unless he allowed you to know it. And again, it all reflects his character, reflects his person. I mean, you think of El Elohim in the beginning, God, El Elohim, speaks of his power. Adonai, it speaks of his lordship, his sovereignty. El Shaddai speaks of... Um, which literally means God Almighty, El Elyon, God Most High, um, Jehovah Jireh, or Yahweh Yira, you've heard of that, God who provides, Yahweh Nisi, the Lord our uh, banner, Yahweh Rophe, the God who heals, Yahweh uh, Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, Yahweh Mekadesh, the God who sanctifies, Yahweh Rohi, the Lord is our shepherd. I mean, these are all the names in the Bible. Have you ever studied them? They all describe who God is in that particular event. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is our peace. Yahweh Shema, the Lord is there. That's probably one of my favorite. The Lord is there. Ezekiel 48, 35. And then just one more. Yahweh Elohim Israel. You could probably translate that. Yahweh Elohim Israel. The Lord, the God of Israel. I mean, with each of those names, you're getting a little portrait, a mini portrait of who God is. So that's what Solomon says. Do you, do you know the name of the Lord? Because if you knew the name of the Lord, you would run to him. He, that name is like a strong tower. It's like a fortress. It's like a castle. It never moves because, because it's the Lord's. He never moves. And as Daniel was talking about earlier, and, you know, what was the purpose of a strong tower? A strong tower is a place where everybody could come and get refuge. In a very agricultural society back then, where everybody's out in the farms doing their thing, um, when the, they would hear the, the chauffeur uh, or, or the trumpet blast because the watchman saw an army, uh, the enemy coming, everybody would just drop everything and what? Run. They would run to the city. They would run up to the strong tower. They would lock the gates because that's, that's, that's the place of protection. That's the picture that Solomon's getting at. Trouble's coming. What do you do? You run. You run. You want a good biblical example of that, uh, just jot it down and look at it later. Judges 9.51. It, it talks about how the people ran for their lives up the strong tower. Judges 9.51. The point is, obviously, it's a place of safety. Trouble comes, you want a place of safety. You want a place of protection. You want a place where you can hide. Where are you going to do that? Where are you going to put your trust in? Or who are you going to put your trust in? You know, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said this, God is so strong a tower that no 
cannon can pierce it. So high a tower that no ladder can scale it. So deep a tower that no subverter can under... No, no one can get in. No one can get under. No one can get above. That's his point. You're safe. You're secure. You know, by the way, that's what Peter meant when he said that believers are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. I think that's also what Jesus meant when he said, I give my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall the, anyone snatch them out of my hand. Do you understand the phrase in Christ? If you're a Christian, you are in Christ. And you know what that means? It means you are safe and secure forever. you understand that? Nothing can separate you from the love of, of Christ. No angel in the heavens. No angels below. No tribulation. I mean, go read Romans 8 again. I'm talking about the security of the Christian there. That's the believer's privilege. He believes the name of the Lord is his tower. What else is this privilege? Well, I said there were three. The other two, they come lots quicker, just so you know. But secondly, the believer's wisdom and privilege is not just that he has an unshakable fortress, and an unshakable fortress is in the name of God, in the name of Christ, and all his attributes. But Solomon points out here that he also has an intuitive faith. An intuitive, there's something inside him as a Christian that, that tells him, I gotta go. I gotta go. This is the, what I call the believer's intuitive faith. Notice what Solomon says here. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous, what? Run to it. They run. In times of trouble, listen, they don't walk, they what? They run. They run. They flee. Let's put it that way. They flee. This is an instinct. An instinct of what? A faith. Because they're born again. They have the seed of God in them. They have the Spirit of God in them. And when trouble comes, it'll be a, a, a natural taking over that they're going to run to the name of the Lord. It's like a child, right? When a child is in trouble, who's he going to run to? Who's, who's, you know, she falls down in the playground. They're going to get themselves up and run to who? They're going to run to mom, right? Or dad, whoever's there. They're going to run to the parent. That, that's the natural instinct of a child, right? Because they know they're going to find safety and protection in a parent. You get the picture, right? As a Christian, who's your heavenly father? Who are you going to run to when you're in trouble, when you get hurt? By the way, the word here, run, has a sense of urgency. Again, he's not walking. He's not strolling. He's fleeing for his life. The idea is really rushes. He rushes to the name of the Lord. He's running to the Lord. He's clinging to the Lord. He's dropping everything, right? He's coming to him with nothing. He's poor in spirit. He's empty-handed. He's broken. Then the enemy is, uh, is upon him, and he just, he just goes. He drops everything. He just goes. And you say, how, how do you run to the name of the, of the Lord? What, what does that look like? Well, you, you heard it in Psalm 20. You pray. That's the first thing you do. You pray. You don't run to the phone. You run to the what? Throne. You, you read his word. You, 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 you talk to him, and he talks back to you. And he talks back to you through who? 
Through what? His Word. Through His Word. Meditation, prayerful reading. That, that's where you're going to find the name of the Lord. Really, when you, when you, you get the, 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 the pathos, if I can call it that, uh, the, the feeling of this verse that Solomon is giving us, there, there is really the idea, uh, the, the picture of eagerness. Um, there's an absence of all hesitation. There's a, there, there is a fear because you're in trouble, but there's a courage because you're, you're, you're not just, you know, it's, it's not the fright, uh, flight or fright. It's, it's just flight. I mean, there's a sense of fright, but you're flying. You're flying to the tower. And as I said, there's, there's an absence of all hesitation. There's really no preparation. There's just the flinging aside every burning and burden, rather, and running. I mean, you can... I'm sure there's... I can't think of one, but there's probably a TV show or movie you've seen where this has happened, where they're in the field, and all of a sudden, around the corner, they see the enemy. And what are they... I mean, they just, they just drop whatever they're doing, and they run they run. That's the picture that Solomon's given you here. They're running. They're fleeing for their lives. So again, I, I come back around and remember the contrast here between verse 10 and 11. The, the question for all of us this morning is, well, do you have that intuitive faith? Do you have that instinct to drop everything and run to God? Think about it. Where, where do you run to? Have you been in trouble lately? Where do you run to? Do you have riches that you're hiding behind? Do you have charisma or personality that you're kind of hiding behind? Do you have even family or friends, as, as, as a blessing as they are, don't make them a crutch. Run to the Lord. Run to the... I mean, this is one of the best things for my wife and I living halfway around the world away from family. I mean, I love my family. But... Uh, We've had to live our life and face troubles on our own. And it's been a huge boon to our spiritual growth, I have to say. So where do you run to? Where is your strong tower? And I trust that your strong tower, you can say, is, yes, amen, brother. It is the name of the Lord. I mean, you remember Hezekiah? Remember Hezekiah? When the Assyrians were knocking on his door, 2 Kings 19... You remember that story? The, the Syrians are knocking on his door. The king Hezekiah is a good king. He gets this letter that says, surrender or die. What does he do? He takes the letter and runs to the temple. He lays the letter out before the Lord and he just falls flat on his face and says, help. That's what you needed to do. He ran to the house of God and spread the letter before the Lord and he took the matter to God. Why? Because that was his privilege, as I said. That was his instinct. That, that, that basically, that's what Hebrews 4.16, that's exactly what he did. He came boldly to the throne of grace so that he may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And you know what happened? Go read 2 Kings 19. God sent his angel and 185,000 Assyrians were killed in one night. And then they fled and then they ran for their lives. Isn't that the irony of the story? So again, what do you do when trouble comes? Do you run? Here's the question. Do you run to God or do you run from God? That's a telltale of where you are in your Christian life. Do you understand that? When trouble comes, do you run to God or do you run from God? And, you know, I understand that's not easy. And I'll be the first to admit that I failed a number of times in this, a number of times in my earlier Christian life. Hopefully I've matured over the years, but I, I would not run 
to God, I would run from God because I, I, I'm a firm believer in the sovereignty of God and I know that the trouble came from Him. So it's not easy to run to someone who's actually sent the trouble. I get that. But really, if you think about the reason why God sent the trouble, it was so that you would go to Him. Right? To wean you from the world. To wean you from the world, remove all the things that you're dependent upon and make you dependent upon Him. That's what Solomon's getting at here. By the way, this is why you need, if I hadn't said this earlier, this is why you do need to know the name of the Lord. That's why you need to be a student of Scripture, why you need to understand uh, the attributes of God and study who God is. Because the more you know God, the more you know His character, the quicker you're going to run to Him. You got that? So we've seen the believer's privilege of having an unshakable fortress. That is, that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Secondly, we've seen the, the believer's privilege of having an intuition of faith. That is, they naturally just run to the tower. And then just thirdly, real quickly, a third privilege is that they have an assurance of faithfulness. They have the assurance of faithfulness. What's left in the verse? This, this last two words. And are what? Safe. Did you get that? That's a promise, by the way. They're safe. They are safe. They are secure. Literally, the Hebrew is they are set on high. They are set on high. The righteous, Solomon says, they run to the strong tower. They scurry up to the very top. And why do they go up to the top? Because at the top is the what? The safest. They can't be touched up there. And who do you find when you get to the top? You're in trouble. You flee to the name of the Lord, which is a strong tower. You scurry all the way up to the top, and who are you going to find there? I'll tell you who you're going to find there. You're going to find Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there. You're going to find Yahweh Yira. That is the Lord providing everyone need. You're going to find Yahweh Shalom. The Lord giving you peace. The peace that surpasses all comprehension. You're going to find Yahweh Roi. That is the Lord your shepherd. You get the point? That's who you're going to find. And I love this. If you want to just keep putting all the names in this. What are you going to do when you're up at the top? You're going to wave a banner out the window. What's that banner? Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner. It's not a, it's not a flag of surrender. It's a, it's a flag of victory. As I said before, when you run to the strong tower of the Lord, you get Him. That's the promise. You get Him. You are safe and secure in His hands where no one can snatch you out. Why? Because your life is hidden in Christ. So, assurance of faithfulness. That's what you get. An unshakable fortress, an intuitive faith, and assurance of faithfulness. Let me ask you, how well do you know the names of the Lord? How well do you know the name of the Lord? You know, Job said, acquaint yourself with God and be at peace. Get to know Him. And talk about somebody that needed to quickly know Him so He could be at peace. Talk about trouble. I, I would go as far, and I'm almost done here, but I would go as far as saying... If you're a Christian here this morning, it is your duty to know the name of the Lord. Yes, it's your privilege. It's, it's, it's the great blessing of being a Christian. But it is your duty. It is your duty to know the name of the Lord. It is the duty to study much the character of God. I mean, after all, Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life. What is eternal life? 
to know you. You understand that? Eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It begins the moment you come face to face with Jesus Christ and know the one and true God. That's eternal life. So, know him. That's my encouragement this morning. I don't know you, but I know you're going to be facing troubles if you're not facing trouble this morning. Where do you turn to? Where do you run to? You, you have an unshakable fortress. As Martin Luther says, you have a bulwark never failing. Remember that hymn? Mighty fortress is our God. That's the whole point. And Solomon here says, this is your wisdom. This is your strength. And this is your promise. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you just for our time this morning. We could be reminded of just your greatness. That we can be reminded that, yes, we are feeble and fragile people living in a troubled world, but we have a never-failing refuge in you. And Lord, we take great comfort in that, and Lord, we often also ask that you would forgive us for not always doing so. And none of us have done that perfectly, Lord. At least, uh, Father, that you would uh, help us to do that, not always perhaps in perfection, but certainly in the direction of wanting to find ourselves in you, our strong tower, knowing that it is a place of safety. Help us to be students of your word and students of your character. Help us to practice the presence of Christ, to know his friendship. Uh, so when trouble comes, it's, uh, it's just a turning. It's a fleeing. It's a clinging to him. Uh, Lord, may he be precious to us if he isn't now. And we grow in our understanding of him and his love for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.